0: Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert.
1: Welcome to the show today. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Thank you for joining me on. Uh, well, we are still digging out of the snow here on the uh, East Coast, and uh, right as we were getting ready, uh, we had another little snow squall. So happy winter to all! Uh, I have a great uh, show for you today, and for listeners who listen every week, uh, you will catch me in a small error. Last week I said that uh, we were going to have a follow-up this week about uh, ADA compliance and universal design. I was wrong. That's next week. But I have a great show f- lined up, and it's really going to be a fun, fun show. Uh, my guest today is someone that I have uh, been following, someone that I have admired for many, many years. Uh, Gary uh, Vicon is the former director of the Walters Art uh, Museum in Baltimore, Maryland, and along with uh, many, many other uh, areas of research and interest. He has recently um, written his memoir that will be published very soon. I know that he'll give us the details of how we can get this great book. And I know that after you've heard uh, some of the discussion today, you will want to put this on an early order. Uh, I was able to, Gary shared with me um, just a, a brief chapter, and it's, it's a great read and a lot of fun. So, Gary, uh, welcome to the show today.
2: Well, I'm pleased to be here.
1: Uh, Gary, why don't you, uh, uh, obviously I have not done justice to your, uh, your career or your resume, so if you would be kind enough in your own words to just share with us your career trajectory and maybe sure. highlight those events and experience that, experiences that have influenced your
2: career. I'd be happy to, but you're very generous. Um, I started life as a printer's devil in a small town in northern Minnesota working for my father. For 40 cents an hour. I'm 69 years old, so 40 cents an hour back in those days was not nothing, but it was nearly nothing. Um, and I fully expected to be a mathematician when I went to Carleton College in 1964. Um, but there was another kind of part of my life, and that was music. And by that, I mean classical music. And I think I would have immediately gone into music were I any good at it, but I just was not. I played the oboe so poorly. That um, you ever heard the joke that what what's what's one oboe at the bottom of the ocean?
1: Um, hear that one? Uh, No, yeah. I'm not up on my music <laughs> jokes, uh, well, Gary. What is it?
2: <laughs> Go ahead.
1: I was going to say. So what is one bottom one oboe on the bottom of the ocean? A good start.
2: <laughs> so what I'm telling you is, I was terrible at that, and I never heard of anything called art history. Um, but I was very good at pictures. I could remember what I saw. My father ran a newspaper and he was a photographer and I was kind of preoccupied with that stuff. So when I was introduced to this notion of art history where you'd sit in a dark room and look at pictures of very exotic things and places, and then all you had to do is memorize what you saw. And if you were reasonably good at it uh, and then write about it. And I was more than reasonably good at that. So I took a detour from math um, into art history. And um, then I went to Princeton and I intersected with one of the great émigré scholars, the German scholars that left in '33. in his case. And his name was Kurt Weitzmann, And I can't tell you that I knew what Byzantium was when I arrived at the doors of Nassau Hall in 1967. But by the time I left, six years later, I, I had a... Uh, Almost Ph.D. in Byzantine art, and so that was my life. And I went to a place called Dumbarton Oaks <clears throat> for almost ten years, um, and there I was a professional scholar in things Byzantine. And I got a phone call one day inviting me to come to the Walters Art Museum, then gallery. And the reason this got my attention is was that that German professor of mine said that the Metropolitan Museum was good, the Morgan Library was just fine, but the greatest museum in the United States was the Walters Art Gallery. So when I was invited by the then director and personal friend Bob Bergman to become the chief curator, I jumped at it. Um, And I liked it. I just really liked putting on shows. And I did that for about a decade, and then... He left, and I was appointed director, and I was director for nearly twenty years, and I'm now retired. So that's the story.
1: Well, that that is a a fabulous. Uh, <laughs> that's a great story, and it shows. Uh, well, it, it shows how uh, how serendipity works. Um, in, in our careers and, and works out for the best. Uh, and I am sure that everyone in Baltimore is now just preening over the fact that the the Walters was considered uh, better than the Met, uh, which I'm <laughs> sure is, is... Well, if is, did you, you do Art for just Dummies, I right doubt if you ever right did. <laughs> but, you know,
2: it's that yellow book.
1: Yes.
0: And
2: yes, Art for Dummies was book. written by Thomas Hobing. Thomas yes. Hobing was a student of the same... Princeton professor as I was. On page 270 or 78 of Art for Dummies, Thomas Hoving, who wrote that book, said, the finest museum in the United States, piece for piece, is the Walters Art Gallery. And so he and I sort of lapped the same Kool-Aid at the same trough uh, there in Princeton, he about 10 or 15, 15 years earlier than me. But, um yeah, the impact of that one man on both of us uh, was amazing
1: wow that's 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 fabulous you you know and it and it is true gary you you became uh, you know you came you came of age uh so to speak, at uh, i mean we, you and i are, are contemporaries i I am not retired, uh, but uh, we <laughs> I, can't, came, I
2: recommend it. <laughs>
1: well I'm working on it uh, oh, anyway uh we um uh, we are we are contemporaries in the uh in the museum world and you you came up uh at at a, i think a fabulous fascinating time uh even though my area of expertise is science I was at the Newark Museum under the venerable sam miller uh mm-hmm. who was you know uh just the to me the quintessential uh, art museum director, and I, I think it really was a raucous and uh, great time. You've already mentioned, you know, Bob Bergman and uh, Hoving. Uh, there, they, you must have had some really pretty fine parties.
2: Oh yes, <laughs> we did. No, I was it was a very lucky time, um, and I think much of the grist of my memoir has to do with two events that were kind of world defined but trickled down into the museum world, and certainly the museum world as I experienced it. And one was the invasion of Cyprus uh, by Turkey in seventy four, which just created a glut on the market of Byzantine art. And I intersected with that. It was stolen. And uh, so the title of my memoir, Sacred and Stolen, comes from that. The other thing that, that had a huge impact on how I experienced museum life was the fall of the Soviet Union. And the reason for that was pretty simple. Uh, The Walters is fairly small. It's one-tenth the size in budget and staff of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Uh, So for us to make our mark, we chose to enter areas that other people were not entering for our exhibitions. Now, what did that mean practically? We did two shows from Russia, one of which was conceived before the collapse of the Soviet Union, and realized after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So it really bridged the two, the two eras. We did a show from Poland. We did one from Ukraine, which is what you read of my memoir, uh, and one from Ethiopia. And that accounts for a chapter in the memoir as well. But because we were kind of in arenas that other people didn't enter, and in some cases didn't want to enter... Um, there was a kind of rough and ready and, and wildness about it that uh, that made it very exciting, and that uh, and that is some of the substance of my memoir.
1: Oh, that's that's great, and so that, that actually does lead into uh, my next question, and you've partially answered it of why why the memoir. I mean, you know, many museum directors, particularly art museum directors, I think they're sort of like a club, just like presidents. You know, you is, all get together true, and you ma'am. and you and you have you sort of and and I'm not making fun of it. I think anyone who. Uh, it's true of all of us. If we are in a certain type of career, we tend to gravitate to those people. I mean, they become our friends. Uh, but also, you know, we can speak a shorthand uh, to people who have been in situations that we've, we've been in. Uh, and so I see that with, with art museum directors. And there aren't a lot of you who were out there writing your memoirs. So why, why you and why now?
2: Well, um, I think part of it is that I come from a place more than 100 miles north of Lake Wobegon, <laughs> which means to say I have storytelling in my DNA. I see. <laughs> and also, um, being a Midwestern person, and you cannot, you can take a person out of Minnesota, but you can't take Minnesota out of a person. And we tend to be, we tend to see life with a sense of irony. And with a sense of simplicity, if those two are reconcilable, and so um, and we like to tell the truth as we see it. So if you add all of those together, there's an inclination to tell to to write a memoir, and to be candid. So the stories I tell are not the the kind that get in the newspaper. The kind that don't get in the newspaper. It's all back of house stuff. Uh, the backstories behind the headlines, and uh, I think they'll come as a as quite a surprise to a lot of people.
1: Yes, uh, oh, I think so. I think it's a it's a fabulous read. Um, uh, just from the the one chapter you shared with me, and before we get into, uh, I, I want you to share a couple of those stories, uh, uh you know, little teasers, if you will. But before we do, um, uh w- now, it is the book is called, um, remind remind us again what Sacred the book is and called, Stolen. Sacred and Stolen. It will be published when and by whom?
2: It will be published by select books, and it will come out in September.
1: Fabulous, fabulous. Uh, so, with that, would you like to give us a little bit of a teaser? Tell us a story.
2: Well, the I lead in in the introduction um, with a text that actually is responding to the photograph that's on the left-hand page. And the photograph shows me with a, with, a, with a man with fairly dark glasses, not sunglasses, but shaded glasses. And I have the Baltimore Sun newspaper of the 10th of June, 1998, in my hand. I also have in my other hand $20,000 in strapped um, $100 bills. And strapped, by that I mean they came from the bank that way. And the individual to whom I'm giving the money is an agent or an academic agent of a lending entity in Ukraine. And we had been working on a show with these people called uh, Gold of the Nomads. And it was a reprise of a blockbuster that had come to the Met in, in LACMA, Los Angeles, in the mid-70s. So we wanted to bring this Scythian gold, which is absolutely spectacular. And the show eventually went to the Grand Palais in Paris, to Toronto, to Los Angeles, to Brooklyn, a few other places. So it was a big deal. But as I negotiated with these people from Ukraine, uh, we hit an impasse. And somebody from their team, and I think it was the man in the photograph, Sun, said to me, if we could only get a white Toyota van, everything would work out just fine. You, is that make oh, sense to you?
1: Um, <laughs> so, no, no, this is making no sense, but, but you so have me the... now. I am hooked. I've got to know more.
2: <laughs> and so I said, sure, I'll buy you the van, but you cannot imagine how difficult it is to arrange for a purchase of a van in Vienna to make its way to Kiev without being taxed or seized. So because we couldn't arrange for a transfer of money that would somehow be above the tentacles of the taxing system of Ukraine. I said, if you want to get your van, come here and get the money, and you figure out how to get your van yourself. So this man showed up on that morning, June tenth, 1998, in a stretch limousine with his son and his niece, who I took to be a prostitute at the time, because she looked not like a niece. She looked like somebody who who made her living in a different way, let's say. And she had these long fingernails with green polish and little designs on them. They came into my office, and I had this money, and the bank was all fussing, even in those days, about money laundering. They wanted bills that were old and non-sequential and strapped. So I had the $20,000. But as a measure of how I distrusted this man and the people with whom I was dealing, my receipt was to hold up the newspaper from that day With the money, splayed out in my hand, with the man, my hand is around his shoulder, and holding the newspaper. So in other words, here I am transferring the money to Yvonne, and you can read the date on the newspaper, and it's June 10th, 1998. So that is an example of the kind of rough-and-ready world in which we existed to do some of our projects and I have, I'm looking at the photograph right now. I have this big smile on my face, and he does, too, for that matter. <laughs> so, yeah, that was fun. Could I do that again? Probably not.
1: I, uh, uh, and i and i gotta ask because i i can you know we, there are are a fabulous uh we have a fa- i have a fabulous listening audience and and i I've also got a lot of uh museum studies students and a lot of museum studies professors and including some law professors and they're probably saying so i mean y- you know you didn't you did this with the full knowledge of your board i mean and obviously um. the bank uh <laughs>
2: I didn't want to trouble him with the details. I see.
1: I see. Yes, because... I mean, it all
2: boiled down to a moment. <laughs> when I took Yvonne by the arm, we were in the offices on 5 West Mount Vernon Place, which is the Walters original mansion. And we'd come to this impasse, and I had an inkling that if he only had a car, he would make things happen. So I took him to the front door, and I pointed down the block, because in those days I had a white... Um, Jeep Cherokee and I pointed at the white Jeep Cherokee and I said to Yvonne how would you like to have a car like that and that's how it all began and so he got a car like that he had to buy it with the cash that I gave him uh, as far as the legality of things I've had the book itself I've had vetted with a lawyer so <laughs> I know that, uh, that we're clean on these matters but at the time it never occurred to me <laughs> that uh, this was anything odd. I mean, after all, realize that in Ukraine at that time, they could barely turn on the lights. Right. And from their point of view, they are, they are sending to the West this enormous treasure. And they know full well that people are going to line up in Paris to pay 12 or 18 or 20 euros. It wasn't euros in those days, but whatever it was, to look at their stuff and so, quite rightly, they thought, well, we should have part of that gate so that, in effect, the fees that went to the people that organized these things were, were participation fees in the gate when the show was in places where people would pay to see it. Does that make sense to you?
1: Yeah, actually, that makes a tremendous amount of sense. And uh, as, as you say, it is only fair. It is, You're showing the patrimony of another, of another exactly. country, and they should, uh, by rights, be partners in that. Uh, and partnership in those days just had to take the form of a white van.
2: <laughs> and so I went to Ukraine, actually. I went to Ukraine. I had been in Ukraine six months earlier.
1: You know, Gary, and, uh, they I'm, were driving Gary. me
2: around in the Toyota white van that they had, and it clearly <sighs> was falling apart. So I have a photograph of me pointing at the van with this smile on my face because I knew that was what I was going to replace.
1: Oh, that's that's fabulous, Gary. I'm going to stop you right there. I know that there there are more stories, and and we're actually going to get into some other very serious matters as well. You've you've mentioned uh, you know the uh, art that uh, came from the invasion of Syria, and that of course also relates to some things that are going on today in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, but we are but so stay tuned, and uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we get back, more uh, with very uh, Gary Vikan and the. Wild West days of being an art museum director, so stay tuned.
3: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content, and at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit Carol carolbossertservices.com, reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn, or call her directly at 240-432-7712 stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com
0: you're tuned into museum life with carol Bossert. to reach our program today please call 1-866-472-5788 That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bosser at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life.
1: Welcome back. This is Carol Bossard and today I'm having a great time talking with Gary V. Kahn, uh, the former director of the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore. He was the director from 1994 to 2013. He's written a fabulous book that will be available um, this September called The Sacred and the Stolen, and right before we w- we went to break, Gary gave a fabulous Fabulous uh, story, uh, uh, and this one is true as opposed to some of the ones that come out of Lake Wolbegon. This was absolutely true. Uh, talking about um, uh, arranging a show with uh, with well, let's call them colleagues uh, from from Ukraine. And uh, Gary, I gotta ask. I mean, so this was was this was this experience typical of what? art museum directors were having to sort of go through to create these these blockbusters and bring in just fabulous art uh, f- uh, from uh, non-Western uh, European countries?
2: Um, I can't speak for the other ones. I can tell you one thing. When I went to Paris to talk to the head of the French museums about this project um, and I, we were going through the budget and she saw a line item for 100000 on roughly a $600,000 fee. In other words, we could deliver the art to their doorstep for $500,000. There was another 100000 that was going straight to Ukraine. And I'm not talking about the car now. I'm ah. just talking about a loan fee that in theory would be used to upgrade galleries and so on. I have no idea how they use that money. So she got to that light out and put her finger down and he says, great museums, she was talking about the Louvre, great museums do not pay loan fees. And I said, well, that's interesting. And I got into the conversation about these poor Ukrainians who couldn't even turn on the lights in their galleries and how they're giving that fancy gold to Paris and Paris is going to charge all these fees. Well, eventually she figured out that they had to pay that money to get that exhibition. So their budget, the one that she presented, the one that went into whatever official files they had, didn't have a loan fee on it. It probably said for gallery renovation, and it said 100000 on it. So if she were telling that story, she's now deceased, she would say, oh, yes, we dealt with Ukrainians, and, of course, we helped them rebuild their galleries. And so, in other words, there's a way of saying that. Same thing that, that I describe in the, what I would call the real way it happened. There's a way of sanitizing that, Um, and so I think a lot of museums, museum directors of my generation, would have gone through a process not so different from the one I've just described in order to get those kinds of shows. It doesn't mean they would describe it in the same way. You see what I'm saying?
1: Yes, yes, abs- absolutely. Uh, that makes perfect sense. And, of, of course, you were doing this at the, the age of the blockbuster. Um, yeah, that yeah
2: was- and I think that, that is an elusive but critical issue. The blockbuster emerged in the 70s with Common with a Scythian Gold Show uh, in New York, in Washington, Los Angeles, And it was sort of like an earthquake, and the ripples from that 70s phenomenon eventually touched every town in this country that has an art museum. And the most interesting one of them was Memphis, Tennessee. In the late 80s, they invented something called the Wonder Series. And so the city of Memphis put $6 million into working capital. And they hired the best curators, the best designers, the best international negotiators, and they would deal with top government officials in Spain or in in um, Egypt or in France. And they would do shows in Memphis in the Civic Center that would draw four and five hundred thousand people, that would cost three and four million dollars. So, in other words, this was at a scale the Met didn't even touch. And this lasted from the late '80s to probably 15 years ago. So maybe it had a 15 or 20 year time horizon, and that's over. It just doesn't. It just doesn't happen anymore.
1: Right, and I, I think I think that's very very interesting. Um, as you say, on a number of levels. One, uh, it, it doesn't it just doesn't happen there there was certainly a, a period in the um, in the 90s and even in the aughts where there was uh, several of my colleagues were doing research on the true cost of a blockbuster for an mm-hmm. institution, you know all of those uh, overtime costs and wear and tears sure. to the gallery, and 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 the fact that over time that it wasn't really um, uh, resulting in increased uh, revenues. Uh, you know, membership would blip. But then right. it would you know that then I mean, after all, we're fickle we are we are human beings, and human beings are fickle and and so you know you give us a great show, and then the next day we say, "So what else do you got for us exactly. and if you know if there isn't anything, we say, well, maybe we'll we'll go do something else, but the so I guess that leads me, and it you know it, the we've already said some things. So, so perhaps the question, you know, the answer is, is uh, obvious. So what, uh, you know, you were saying at the break, um, you know, you, you're happy that you've, you've retired, you had a great career and, and you're, uh, you know, entitled to be doing other things, which you are, but you also said it got to not be so fun. Um, So can you just share a little bit of, you know, from (laughs) your perspective about, I mean, how things shifted at that time?
2: I guess that, that kind of the increasing oversight on the one hand, um, tighter money, on the, how many hands can you have, uh, but on the third hand, uh, that it, there was just less excitement in individual communities. I remember I would just gotten a cell phone, and I was selling, quote-unquote selling, the Scythian Gold Show, which would have been probably about, ninth, I was selling it before I secured it, so it would have been late late 97 and i remember standing on charles street on the edge of charles street talking to the then director of LACMA, and it took no more than five minutes to settle a four hundred thousand dollar deal um that just doesn't happen anymore there isn't the demand on one hand and that just means that audience tastes have shifted. It's come and gone. Um, certainly in pre-modern art, it's come and gone. Pre-contemporary.
1: Right. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, but, you know, I, it, it also seems that at least in, you know so we've been through uh, you know several sort of ups and downs I mean in your career and certainly in mine we've we have you know the 2008 uh, Great Recession was is clearly a serious uh, vacuum of of uh, money and when money gets tight you know philanthropy is is one of the first areas to feel it but you know there were others I mean 91 was not such a perky time uh, as I remember when I was in Newark. Um it, but it seems to me that it, it's not just the money and it's not just the, you know, shift in blockbuster. But there seems to be a shift in the way museums are. Relating to their communities and uh, maybe yeah. communities expecting them, you know. So it's not right. just we're going to the the museum to see the big show, and we're going to right. the big show. Maybe because we like the art, and maybe it's because, like you know, when you go out to Wyoming and you you go to uh, Yellowstone, you better see Old Faithful whether you want to or not. Because when right. you come home to Minnesota, they're going to say, "Did you see Old Faithful?"
2: <laughs> That's true, and you can lie to them, but it won't <laughs> work. So, yeah, old Faithful and the Mona Lisa are sort of the same thing in that respect, um, but to respond to or build on your point about shifting sensibilities, uh, I think the texture of engagement now is so much a give and take, a kind of shared ownership between what the museum is up to and what the community expects and um i You spoke earlier about the emerging generation of new leadership. Uh, I think it's a very different generation from my own and I think it's very exciting Um, and I would love to be part of that um, if I were starting over again but it would be much more a texture of on the ground connecting with your your community multiple ways of, of creating art environments, art creations where both the artist and the audience are part of a, a shared activity. One of the last things we did, a couple of the last things we did at the Walters right before I retired, was an um, audience-sourced, crowd-sourced exhibition, and I identified two staff members who were not senior staff, but, but kind of mid-level, who were very bright, are very bright, admired by the whole whole staff uh, and two of them, and I gave them, I think it was 25000 And I said, do an exhibition. I don't care how you do it, but crowdsource it. So they crowdsourced the subject matter, the title, the objects in the show. And then as the show evolved over what, 12 weeks, however long it was up, um, the audience would respond to what they were seeing, and so the show evolved over the course of that time. And it was called Public Property and was based on the notion that the public owns the collection. So the public ought to have a voice in how the material is chosen to look at and how it's presented. Um, So, yeah, I think that was a kind of look at how things are changing. Um, And I I think it's for the bigger museums, the traditional museums, the museums with encyclopedic collections like the Walters, um, to find ways to respond to that emerging expectation. It's not emerging. It's there.
1: that's that's a that's a good point. And so then that leads me to a question uh, that I think will lead into some of the your thoughts about um, uh, it, you know, a, um, stolen antiquities, antiquities that are on the market. Uh, and that is the uh, you know the question of and the purpose. Of collections today, I mean, it seems to me that that, uh, along with the blockbuster show and this shifting relationship with uh, between museums and communities, there's also a shift in philosophy about collection, collecting practices, and the purposes of collecting. Would that? Would you agree with that?
2: Oh, definitely. Um, I think. Much of the change in sensibility and practice is good. Um, in the old days, in the pre-1970 UNESCO Convention on Cultural Property days, um, the the art-rich countries and the art-poor countries, in other words, people like the United States that had lots of money and no Greek art, um, what was happening was, was not right. Um, and now I think we've come to a better balance having said that the encyclopedic museums that they exist in the united states in particular because it's not a world phenomenon at all you go to france except for the louvre you see french art you go to sweden you see swedish art Um but the united states you see art from all countries um, all cultures all times and in a way it's a reflection of the of the multiple origins the rich origins of an immigrant country that we of the immigrant country that we are but I think, uh, I think we're much better now at being respectful of the art source countries. Having said that, um, the role that museums play in preserving the cultural patrimony of the world, because the cradle of civilization, after all, is our cradle. It is not owned by Iraq, Iran, or Syria. It's something that we all care about. So the role of museums worldwide, in the United States in particular, in preserving Cultural artifacts, which are disappearing physically now in a way that that is quite unusual, I think is should be celebrated um, so i think we're we're looking for a new balance, um, and we 're not there yet uh, in how art should move across borders
1: that's that's interesting. Um, and and I but I would think that also is uh, is provocative and because at the same time uh, we are having you know we are it's in the news newspaper all the time I mean ISIS is is also uh, uh, terrorizing um, our as you say um, shared human patrimony I mean destroying you know, beautiful uh, and rare uh, uh, temples and uh, uh, Achievements, human achievements, and this is occurring also within the context of uh, re, uh, repatriation of of artifacts uh, um, into back into Egypt, uh, back into uh, uh, Native American cultures. What it seems as if there's a bit of a fine line here.
2: Uh, yeah, it's a difficult uh, it's a difficult uh, navigation. I'm a strong advocate for safe harbor at this moment in relationship to antiquities from Syria and Iraq. And by that, I mean, let objects come into the United States, not that are tied to ISIS. And by the way, um, the relative role of ISIS in the movement of antiquities, despite what you read in the newspapers, is tiny. It is just not how they fund themselves. And I spend a lot of time talking to a lot of people who know much more about this topic than, uh, than I do. So um, what I'm advocating for is acknowledging that there are smugglers out there that have been in the business for generations. And if we have a choice of having these objects that are, that are on the loose, so to speak, destroyed on the one hand by ISIS or whether or not we could take them in safe harbor with a full acknowledgement that title and ownership belongs to the country of origin and that once the country of origin has returned to a degree of stability these objects will go back Uh, that is something I believe very strongly in, Uh, and the the, uh, British Museum is doing this right now
1: uh, yes. That, and so that is truly the difference. Be, and it is the retention of, uh, of, of title of ownership uh, to the, uh, the country of origin. Uh, as opposed, and so that's what makes it different than, say, the case uh, that was in the paper. There are many, but one that is coming to mind of the uh, uh, Elgin marbles uh, and the, uh, the request by Egypt to return those. By Greece, by Greece. Okay, Egypt, Greece. Yeah, all right. So, you know, I'm not quite sure where Byzantium is either. But if you want to know about DNA and cells, I'm your girl.
2: Okay. No, I mean I, the, the, the Elgin Marbles is an interesting case, and I've long advocated for the return to Greece. Uh, and for one simple reason, that monument is transcendent. The Parthenon is without parallel. In antiquity and in world history, in Western culture. And to have its pieces in two different places is crazy. If you've ever been to the Parthenon Museum in Athens, it's spectacular beyond belief. And you ramp up to the top level, and you look out the window, and you see the Parthenon itself. You turn around, and you look at the frieze of the Parthenon, the pieces that are still in Greece and plaster copies of the ones that are in London. And you say to yourself, this creature has been dissected. It Mm. must be put back together again. It's not an issue of Greece, as we understand Greece right now. It's not an issue of England. It's an issue of world patrimony. It's an interest that we all have in the integrity of that monument. Imagine that the Mona Lisa were snipped in half and you would see half of it in Italy where it was painted and half of it in France where it's been since the 16th century. You'd say to yourself, that's crazy. Let's make this whole again. Right. So, it's a complex and subtle world but uh, but one that deserves careful thought. And I well think at said. the end of the day um, I think acknowledging that World Patrimony is something in which we all have an interest.
1: Yes, yes. We are going to break here, and when we come back, more with uh, Gary Vikan and uh, his thoughts on on art and museums and the museum community today. So stay tuned. We will be right back. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life.
3: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations, no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com, reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn, or call her directly at 240-432-7712. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's one 472 5788 Or send an email to carol.bosser at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life.
1: Mm-hmm. Welcome back. I am here. This is the final segment of our show today, and I'm here with Barry, uh, Gary V. Kan, uh the former director of the uh, uh, Walters Art Museum in Baltimore, Maryland. And uh, I know you all now have marked on your calendar this September. Uh, you know, look at uh, all of your book sources. You are going to want to get a copy of The Sacred and Stolen. Sacred and Stolen is Gary's memoir about being an art museum in the Wild West days uh, and it is fabulous but I think more importantly it also uh, raises some very important questions about the uh, the art museum world today uh, the world in which we live and the importance of art and shared world patrimony and so Gary in this final segment uh, you have also been very involved in an area called neuroaesthetics uh, right. and that actually is where I first um uh, uh, was learning of your work. It's, uh, I find this particularly interesting um, and important. Could you share with us what that is? And I know you also gave a recent uh, talk about uh, the subject.
2: Uh, Neuroesthetics is the study of the aesthetic experience and the process of creativity um, as it is a function of, of the brain. Um, so it's neuroscientists Who have kind of wandered in the land of uh, of aesthetics and art and speculated on what happens during the creative process what happens during the aesthetic experience um, what happens uh, when uh, when somebody improvises a musician Um, and it's just beginning it's it's just the beginning field but when I was an undergraduate in college, I was very taken with aesthetics uh, because I thought, well, I knew that art had tremendous power. And I wondered where that power came from. Um, so when I, when I became acquainted about 10 or 12 years ago with this emerging field of neuroaesthetics, um, I started to pay attention. And by good luck, there were a couple people at Hopkins here in town who were doing some very exciting things, one of which uh, is named Ed Connor at the uh, Mind-Brain Institute at, at the Homewood campus. And he was working with monkeys and putting little wires on the neurons in their brains and showing them pictures of Henry Moore's sculpture. And what he was discovering was that these little neurons would fire at specific aspects of the shape of the sculpture. And if you think for a second what the implications are of this. Um, you may know Clive Bell, who was one of the uh, Bloomsbury Group, um, about 1920, came up with this notion of significant form, and that was the idea that there are some shapes that artists discover that have the ability to tap into your, your own aesthetic sensibility and essentially trip a wire that creates an aesthetic experience. Um, And that idea just hung there uh, between roughly 1920 and 10 years ago because anybody could say, well, look, who gets to decide? How do we know this? You just say that. How is it verifiable? So when I discovered that Ed Conner was testing monkeys' neurons for their own likings of shapes of Henry Moore's, I said, well, is there any way that we could kind of extend this into the art museum? And as it turned out, he was about to use human subjects. Now, realize you don't put wires into heads of undergraduates at Hopkins. What you do is have them sit in front of screens. It's, it's not very, very hard to do this. And the screens will show them in three, three-dimensional three um, images of distorted shapes of works of art. And he, he chose... Not Henry Moore, in this case, but Hans Arp, this blob sculptor um, who is very familiar to most people, and he chose him because there are no holes in the middle, so it 's simplified life and he would He would distort them into twenty five different shapes, some of which were more pointy than the original, some of which were more blobby. And so the students would look at these 25 shapes and all they had to say was the one they liked the best and the one they liked the least. And I said, well, let's do this at the Walters also. So we did blow-ups uh, and people put on these funny little 1950s uh, 3D glasses and looked at these, these photo blow-ups, each of which had 25 shapes, one of which was the original, Sean Arp, and the other 24 were distortions that were done um, according to a pattern. So in other words, they were done in a very kind of predictable scientific way. And sure enough, people's preferences in the art museum, people's preferences, student preferences in the lab, monkey preferences all converged. And so he took the students who'd worked in the lab and put them in the fMRI. And the fMRI just measures where, where uh, blood flows in the brain um, as something's happening. And he showed these same students the shape they liked the best from the test in the lab. And sure enough, their their brains got all excited. And the one they liked the least, and their brains got unexcited. So this may sound kind of naive and, and simplistic, but in fact, what this boils down to is that our brains are hardwired to like certain shapes. And so the implication of this is that the artist the Jean Arps, the Henry Moores, and the Michelangelos of the world are kind of in the business of probing material through, their, through the skill as an artist that, that trip that aesthetic sensibility that's already wired into our heads and that significant form. And so that makes of the artist an intuitive neuroscientist and so this is sort of just the beginning of understanding how the art experience works in the brain. Uh, and it's a whole new field. And the conversation uses pieces as early as Plato and Aristotle, who posed many of these questions, Kant and Clive Bell. But now we have a whole new tool to look at what happens when we see a great work of art. And I find it very exciting.
1: That is, that's fabulous, and I, 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 I too am excited. I did not realize I, I, I. Read some of the studies with with human subjects, and I I had some questions about the methodologies and whether they were pre, you know, humans perhaps were preconditioned uh, from birth to to uh, be told that certain uh, certain shapes are more pleasing or whatever. But you know, probably those monkeys didn't go to Princeton's uh, Art School, so I would say that that is uh, that. Uh, correlation is is quite fascinating and clearly fits in with the um, the thinking um, and and uh, focus on creativity uh, in creativity in your life creativity in the workplace creativity I mean you want to have a, a post read on LinkedIn just put the word creativity in the post and you'll get you know a thousand likes uh, its it seems then, just as an extension, that this is an area. Well, it's an area of scientific research, and that's it, fascinating in and of itself. But it is also an area where museums and art museums, in particular, can uh, uh, declare their value to society.
2: Well, yes, in a way, and I think I think I'm, I hope I'm not reading things into what you just said, but. I think to the degree we understand what the aesthetic experience is and its, and its value, its, its enriching value, what it does for us. Um, and, you know, in a way, we can say you go to the museum to learn something. Uh, well, you can learn things on the Internet. You can learn things in the classroom. You can learn things from books. Uh, you can go to the museum in order to have a socially enriched experience. You can do that by walking the woods. What is it about encountering the David by Michelangelo walking into Shark Cathedral? What is it about that experience that is so distinctive? When I was at the Walters, I would when I met all the new staff, I would say what business are we in? And they would say, oh, we're in the education business. We're in the, I don't know. I say, no, we're in the experience business. What we offer is the experience of a work of art, unmediated, direct encounter with the creative genius of the past. We have curators and museum directors and conservators, all kinds of specialists and educators who can tell you lots of things about a work of art, but it can talk to you without that aid. And what is that doing? And how does that create value for you? To the extent we understand that, we can enhance it, and we can articulate our value in a better way. Uh, I'm not at all comfortable with the notion that museums exist to create economic advantage. There are lots of economic engines in communities, and I'm not at all convinced that art museums are very efficient toward that outcome. What is it about the art museum and the experience within the art museum or the symphony hall or the ballet theater, that is distinctive to what they do, intrinsic to what the art experience is, and what is the benefit that accrues to that. And I think to the degree we understand that, our conversations in advocating for the role of art in our lives, which is not a subunit or a combined area of our lives, it is the totality. it's, it's It's an aspect of everything we do. Um, I think we will be better off for it.
1: I I could not agree with you more. Uh, I you have said it much more eloqu- eloquently, but I I think that it is this area where when. As we are doing right now, museums are in both a self-reflected period as and in a uh, very important conversation with their communities. And it is this justification—the justification of of uh, art for art's sake, not for the sake of the art, but for the sake of what it what it does for us and creates a shared aesthetic vocabulary, it doesn't matter, you know, it's not freighted with socioeconomics. Uh, it, it, uh, there seems to be a, a, a humanity uh, that is tapped, and if we can find a language for it, then perhaps we have a, a better shared language to talk about our humanity than we've, we've come up with before.
2: No, I, I, think, I think you're absolutely right, and what the boundaries of that experience is or are is a great puzzlement. Uh, I was at a conference at the Getty about yeah, maybe eight years ago, and it was devoted to leisure time um, and really what that means and what the implications are of leisure time for the art experience, museums, and so on. But I wandered really into much more interesting areas, and the two people that I sat next to at this you know, two- or three-day conference, on my right-hand side was a neuroscientist from the Semmel Institute at UCLA, and on my left was the guy who was head of design for BMW Auto Works. And I, we were going to lunch, and I said to the guy from BMW, who happened to have a PhD in music from the Peabody Institute here in, in Baltimore, I said to him, "Well, why are you at a conference that is devoted to museums and creativity and leisure time?" And he said, "BMW, for the last 80 years, has been designing cars through trial and error and intuition." BMW exists by virtue of, of customer loyalty. And he said, we're about to enter the post-petroleum age where cars are going to behave differently simply because they're going to be electric and not petroleum-driven. I want to understand in a brain science way what it is that our customers like about our cars so that we can transfer the affect from the petroleum-driven vehicle, to the electric-driven vehicle.
1: That's and fabulous. Came out
2: with the with first example of that, yeah. I think it was last, last spring.
1: Yes, um, that's a fabulous example. And with that, we're going to have to close the show today. Gary, thank you, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Uh, I appreciate you being on the show.
2: Thank you very much. I enjoyed it.
1: Thank you. And we will be back next week with another edition of Museum Life. Uh, I always welcome your uh, participation in the show, so uh, let me know what you think. Uh, I'll be back next week. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.